We come to Revelation chapter 6. <clears throat> I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety. So as you note from the outline, we will be dealing only with the first eight verses. Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying, as with a voice of thunder, Come. And I looked, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. When he broke the second seal, I heard the second living creature saying, Come. And another, a red horse, went out, and to him who sat on it, it was granted to take peace from the earth, and that men would slay one another, and a great sword was given to him. When he broke the third seal, I heard the third living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, a black horse, and he who sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, Come. I looked, and behold, an ashen horse. And he who sat on it had the name Death, and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, <clears throat> and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was put apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the commanders, and the rich and the strong, and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us, and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne, and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Before we venture into a detailed exploration of the imagery of the four horsemen of the apocalypse, let's pause to assess where we have been and where we end in the tapestry which frames the content section of this revelatory book. Before we enter the world of seven seals, 
and seven trumpets and seven angels and seven bowls, we are given a window into heaven, a portal to the throne of God and the Lamb. After we have experienced the repetitive and duplicate world of the seven seals and seven trumpets and seven angels and seven bowls, we are ushered to the golden gates of a celestial city crowned by the throne of God and the Lamb. Do you see it? Chapters 4 and 5, a vision of heaven with its glorious throne room, God and the Lamb central to the scene. And then again, chapters 21 and 22, a vision of the heavenly city with its glorious throne, God and the Lamb central to the scene. Heaven frames the body of this book. Heaven bookends the body of this book. Heaven is the beginning and the end of the recapitulatory visions of this book. Or when we get those patterns of seven, we are recapitulating the very same motifs, yet with different imagery. That's what I mean by recapitulatory pattern. Heaven, where God himself is, and the Lamb that was slain, and the sevenfold Holy Spirit, they are the beginning and end of this book. They are the beginning and end of our faith. They are the beginning and end of our hope. Look up. Look up to heaven. The macro structure of the book of Revelation draws you up to heaven and to the eternal, eternal triune God who dwells there in glory with his saints glorified. So remember, you have two portraits of heaven in the book of Revelation, not just chapter 21 and 22, which conclude the book. You have two other chapters, 4 and 5, which begin the body of the mysteries of the book. Keep that in mind when you want to meditate upon the glory that is yet to be revealed. Now, with this business of imagery, let us remind ourselves that in this book we are dealing with symbolism, symbolic portraits of the interadventual age. Symbols of the interadventual era, the era between the present age and the age to come, the era between the temporal age and the eternal age, the era between the provisional age and the consummate age, the era between the age of incarnation and the age of the parousia of Christ. The age of the gospel and its effect upon the world, namely the establishment of the church, the redemption of sinners from every nation, tribe, and tongue, <clears throat> that age in the present and the age of the final judgment of the <clears throat> bookend, the interadventual period. This is a particularly symbolic book which contains panel after panel of symbols which are indicative of events which repeat themselves over periods of hundreds, 
even thousands of years. <clears throat> that is also a way of defining this term recapitulatory, namely the panels of symbols which we see, <clears throat> which are varied and differ from one another. Those panels are indicative of the events which repeat themselves over the period of contemporary history over hundreds and thousands of years. They are not necessarily reserved to a future tribulation or a future millennial period at all. They are symbols of what's going on in the interadventual period between our Lord's ascension and his return on the clouds of glory. Now, in particular, with respect to the seven seals, the contents of the seals are repetitive patterns. The contents of the seven seals are repetitive patterns of ongoing sequences in the interadventual era. Between, as I say, I'm repeating myself, the ascension of Christ and the return of Christ. Seven, as we have learned, is a symbolic number. We have discovered that before. It is a symbol of completeness or fullness or coming to its final purpose. These seven seals then here in chapter six represent patterns of God's full sovereignty, his full and complete sovereign providential rule over history throughout the entire interadventual era, throughout the entire period between the ascension and return of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> now, there is some development within the pattern of the seven seals. The sixth seal symbolizes the final judgment <clears throat> And the seventh seal contains the silence of the cosmos prior to its final dissolution and destruction. Whereas Second Peter 3.12 says, dissolved with a fervent heat. All right, let's look at the pattern then of the sequence of the seven seals. The first four of the seven, when they are released, are described by the hearing of a voice. One of the four living creatures speaks. There is a sequence then of the creature's speech itself and a sequence of colored horses. There is therefore a dialogical kind of narrative drama in the first four of the seven seals. Seal number five focuses on the glorified dead martyrs, the souls laying beneath the altar of the throne of God, Christians who died for their gospel testimony, for their loyalty to the word of God, died for the faith of the Lord Jesus. The sixth seal, as I indicated briefly before, represents the final judgment with the unleashing of the wrath of God and of the Lamb on that great day of the Lord's terrible anger. And the final seal, the seventh seal, 
indicates the final dissolution of the cosmos in, <clears throat> in accordance with Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27, and Second Peter chapter 3, verse 12, as I already indicated. Let me read Hebrews chapter 12, verse 27 for a moment, and let us remind ourselves of what that verse says. The removing of those things which can be shaken will be removed as of created things. That's the created heavens and earth so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Well, what cannot be shaken? Heaven itself and the glory of the invisible world of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and those glorified saints. So the writer of Hebrews is talking about a time when all the created order, all of material reality will be shaken, shaken to destruction, shaken to disappearing, so that what is uh, eternally valid will remain. Second Peter 3.12, I quoted it a little bit earlier uh, based upon the King James translation, because I like that fervent heat element, but the New American Standard says, we're looking for the day of God looking for the day of God because the heavens will be destroyed by burning or by a fervent heat and the elements will melt with intense heat. There's going to be a dissolution of this created cosmos. It's going to be a dissolution of what we know as material matter. And what will remain is that which cannot be shaken, namely the new heavens and new earth. Not material, but real spiritual reality. It already exists. It, it exists in order to fill up the full measure of God's patience and election. But when that day comes when it is fulfilled, then all of this will disappear. So that that which remains and abides, even as Jesus talks about abiding in him and he abiding in us, that which remains will endure for eternity. All right, now, we come to look at verse 1 and verse 2, and we ask ourselves, who is the rider on the white horse? If we turn ahead to chapter 19, verse 11, we read the following. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. Many commentators have identified the rider on the white horse and the first of the seven seals as Christ himself, which is undoubtedly true in Revelation 19.11. And they have therefore said the rider on the white horse is Christ. No, he is not. They are wrong. Let us notice the pattern of the structure of these eight verses. <clears throat> first eight verses of chapter six. The pattern of the first four seals. Let us ask ourselves an obvious question. Are these horses bringing riders with good things or bad things? And the answer is, 
Both? I don't think so. No, these riders are bringing bad things. Each of the four horses represents a particular aspect of the curse. The curse under which the created order groans in travail. The curse of conquest. The curse of war. The curse of famine. The curse of death and hell. Each of the four horses symbolizes the effect of evil and the curse through this present evil age. Now, as a confirmation of that, notice what verse 8 says. Read carefully that second sentence. Authority or power was given to them. What's the antecedent of that pronoun them or they? It's the four horsemen. And then the list which follows there in verse 8, those are all elements of the curse on the sinful world. The curse which is on the sinful world in every year of the interadventual age. The curse manifesting itself even to us in 2018. Do we not witness as 2,000 years of history witness conquests and conquerors? Verse 2. Do we not witness as 2,000 years of history witness evil results of unjust war and and <clears throat> bloodletting swords even today? Do we not witness as 2,000 years of history witness evils resulting from war and conquest, namely famine, starvation, plague, and pestilence? And do we not witness as 2,000 years of history witness death and its attendant final destruction? The four horsemen are a symbolic unit They are together in what they are about. They, the plural pronoun, are agents of the curse. The curse which sin has brought into history. Each horse is symbolic of a particular curse motif. So the writer in chapter 19 is distinguished and different. In fact, he is completely different than the rider on the white horse which begins the four horsemen's gallop across the history of the cosmos. Well then, why the white color on the first horse? The white color on the first horse, if this is a horseman bringing the curse, the white color is disingenuous. It is not what it seems. This is white as deception. This is white as an emblem of power or authority as deceit and hypocrisy. It appears white and pure. It is actually dark and impure. It appears as an angel of light. It is actually demonic, like the dark Lord himself. Paul, the apostle, reminds us in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
He is able to counterfeit. The cursed devil himself is able to counterfeit himself as an angel of light. It should not then surprise us that this writer has a white horse and rides out in order to do the cursed evil that is underneath that white garment. The white horse appears to be pristine in power and authority for good, but it is deceptively disingenuous and is actually underneath the white color a force for evil. The white horse appears to be the pristine power of benevolence, but it deceives and is the power of malevolence. It appears, this white horse, to be the pristine power of moral purity, but it deceives. It is the power of immoral impurity. You see, the white collar is a cloak for the cursed character of the horseman himself. He is a hypocrite. He is a deceiver. He is a fraud. He is a counterfeit. He appears to be the pristine power of tolerance, but in his hypocrisy, he is in fact the power of intolerance. He appears to be the pristine power and authority of freedom, but he is in truth the power and authority of slavery and bondage to himself and his system. He appears to be the pristine power of liberation, but he is in fact the power of subjugation, submitting to his will and to his agenda and to his order and to his tyranny. He appears to respect the right of private or personal conscience, but he deceives for he stifles and suppresses freedom of conscience and he will not tolerate any liberty of conscience other than his own tyranny. The white horse appears to be pristinely democratic, small d, but he is in fact despotic, capital D. The white horse appears to be purely libertarian, but he is in fact totalitarian. The white horse appears to be purely remedial. We're just going to change everything and improve the world. He is, in fact, dictatorial and wants to dominate the world. The white horse appears to be pristinely God-fearing. Oh, folding his hands in apparent reverence in magnificent cathedrals of Washington, D.C. But he is, in truth, God-hating. Underneath that white Shroud is the black curse of a personality bound in its own depravity and totalitarian and tyrannical rage and and determination to dominate. The white horse represents all fraudulent abusers of power and authority. That's the reason that word in verse 8 Authority or power translated differently in your versions is important. The white horse represents all fraudulent abusers of power and authority. The power brokers, the manipulators, the glad handers who are actually backstabbers, the users and abusers, the great planners who are in truth great plotters and schemers, 
hungering for and lusting after more and more, ever more power and authority to dominate, to subjugate, to humiliate, to control other humans by whatever means possible, even if they have to crush them with injustice. That is the disingenuous white cape of the so-called superheroes of our own generation. Underneath is the character of the curse. And boy, are we learning about it more and more day by day as we live in this first 21st, this early 21st century. The color of the white horse is deceptive. The attractive appearance of the white steed, in fact, hides the tyranny and immorality of the kingdom of darkness. That's the reason the white horse is not Christ. This horse rider is the servant of the kingdom of darkness, as all the other three are as well. Randy. Therefore, God always calls on evil forces to enforce punishment and wrath. Well, that's behind all of this. I mean, God is behind the unleashing of them. The scroll is being unraveled from the hands of the one that sits at the right hand of the throne. So, yes, it's God's purpose to permit this cursed evil for his own purposes. But my point here is that the rider of the right horse is part of that cursed order. He's not part of the ever-blessed order of the Lord Jesus himself. God will bring good out of all of this evil, that is true. But nonetheless... Well, the, I know God's behind it, but does he always use evil forces to enforce wrath and punishment? Or does he sometimes use angelic forces too as well? I don't know. Uh... I can't comment on the angelic forces. I don't know any scriptural passage which would support that suggestion. Uh, These are agents of evil in creating these things which we see manifested through human agency. So that, I would, I would say these are human agents of the kingdom of darkness. Any other comment? The, the power to rule. So he has authority and power to rule, and the crown indicates that he is, he is a manipulator, he is a dominator, one who wants to be lord, so to speak, over parts of the creation or the whole creation. All right, that brings us to the fourth verse and to the red horse. Notice that he carries a great sword. That is a sword of bloody death. A sword of unjust war, not peace. A sword of killing, slaying, and bloody mayhem. This ongoing bringer of war is the symbol of Christ's statement that this present age, this present evil age, this present interadventual age, 
will resound with wars and rumors of wars, Matthew 24, 6. We who believe are not to be frightened by these recurrent conflicts. Jesus tells us in Mark 13, 7, that as they are common effects of human sin and depravity in this era and every era of the interadventual age, so they will not disappear. They will continue. This is this, this is the image that these horse riders carry of the ongoing contemporaneous quality of these cursed motifs. We will grieve rightly over the curse of unjust war and unjustified bloodshed. We are not to be surprised by its presence. We are not to be taken off guard by its reality in a fallen world under the curse. Unjust, bloody war is but one more testimony to the sinful nature of the human heart and a reminder that peace will never come on earth. Peace will never come on earth until Jesus comes to earth again. And I don't mean to imply by that that he will set up a millennial kingdom in so doing. I do not believe he will. Christ Jesus alone brings perfect peace and establishes a kingdom of no more war, no more bloodshed. That kingdom is called the kingdom of heaven, and it is qualified, characterized rather, by everlasting peace. There is your anti-war and non-war kingdom. If that's where you want to be and that's what you want to have, then you have to have a faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the hope of heaven, because it exists now already in God's heavenly presence. You're not going to create any earthly utopians because you don't have the means, humanly speaking, to eliminate human sin and, and, and natural depravity. It won't disappear under human instrumentation. To that peaceable kingdom, namely the heavenly kingdom, we may belong by the grace of God and faith in Christ through the transforming operation of the Holy Spirit. That's the gospel as you know it. <clears throat> but there are no utopias in this, this side of the kingdom of heaven. There's the eternal utopia. That's where, where, there's where your treasure and your heart needs to rest, not trying to create on earth some kind of heaven in this world. That's the, that's the heresy of the Enlightenment. <clears throat> that's the heresy of the age of reason, that they believed that they could, by human efforts, change all of evil in the world by reason and, uh, and, and, uh, and understanding and education, as a matter of fact. We know how miserable a <clears throat> legacy that has left upon the face of the earth and still does. So don't be naive. Don't fall for these political sucker punches in which they promise you that they'll get rid of all the problems in the world and the problems that mankind face and problems that your communities and your nation face. No. No. Those are people who are riding the white horse, if not the red one. All right, we'll take our break now. Now to verse 5 and the black horse and its rider. This image represents the attendant elements of war, both before and after bloody clashes. In other words, the consequences of the red horse 
are contained in the black horse, even as the consequences of the red horse derive from the disingenuousness of the white horse, you know, pretending peace but underneath creating turmoil and commotion and ultimately warfare. The scales in the writer's hand represent the marketplace and economic factors associated with war in every age. And that is doubly clear because of the verse which describes the use of the denarius and the grains in the marketplace. These are not the scales of justice. That's not the issue here. This is the scales of economic plenty or economic scarcity. The preparation of war and the effectuation of war produces famine, starvation, economic scarcity, pestilence, and plague. All of this is telescoped in verse 6 by an illustration from the agora, or the marketplace. The cost of grain to make bread and staples skyrockets in sieges and with the final collapse of population centers. All, all prices go up because of the scarcity. The inequality and inability here is in a basic necessity, namely food. So what more common element to illustrate the curse of the black horse? And that inequality and inability is derived from the depravity which created it, namely bloody conflict. Now, a denarius, according to Matthew 20, verse 2, is the daily pay for a workman in the first century. So we have here a quart of wheat, <clears throat> enough for a loaf of bread, costing a day's wages. One day's income for one day's loaf of bread. One loaf of bread on one day. That is very expensive bread because of the scarcity of the commodity. The estimates are that this cost of a quart of wheat for denarius is 10 to 16 times higher than the ordinary price in the first century. Now, barley is cheaper. It's cheaper than the wheat, but even it requires a day's wages <coughs> to get three quarts of it. Now, barley was not the favored grain for making bread, because it has no gluten in it, at least as my research indicates, so there's nothing to bind it together. But barley cakes were used in the first century by the poor, but barley was generally used as fodder for wild animals or for domesticated animals, I should say. So it's a, it's a lesser grain with respect to nutrition, but nonetheless can provide some uh, <coughs> nutrition. All right, so the prices are inflated and the abundance is reduced, is deflated, and that's the price of war and its consequences. 
But what about this command not to harm the oil and the wine? Why is it prohibited to destroy the beverage and the everyday cooking oil? Randy? Go ahead. Protecting the rich. The rich got to keep their stuff rolling. Oil and the wine are mostly symbolic of the rich. I don't think so. That's what that, one of the book writers That is true. There are many commentators that take that position, but once again, there are commentators who don't take that position. I happen to agree with the minority view here. <clears throat> this is something that is common to both. So that's the reason it's not to be harmed. It's not because the rich have a better opportunity or more facility in gaining it is because any effect upon it would have an effect upon their health as it would have an effect upon the health of the poor. Why? Because wine was about the only potable drink that was safe to use routinely in this culture in this age. The water was generally very impure and therefore could, was not generally drunk. It could be heated and, and, and boiled for cooking purposes but not for drinking purposes. So <clears throat> this is this is something which touches all of the, these classes of society, rich and poor alike, and they're prohibited from destroying it or harming it, not allowing it to, to produce its benefit. And the cooking oil, of course, is the way that you cook or cook the grains or cook the staples that you need for basic sustenance. So <clears throat> those things are to be left a- alone. But so God himself, even in this curse, is placing a limit on the extent of the scarcity that the famine and, uh, and drought may produce as a result of, of uh, military and, and uh, belligerent conflict. All right, now to the color of the last horse. The Greek word used here is debated in translation. There are some translations that say green, he's a rider of a green horse. There are others that say he's a rider of the pale horse or the ashen horse, as the New American Standard reads. Green or greenish, yellow-green, suggests the color of death by plague or pestilence. That would be a logical outcome of the black horse, the third of the instruments of curse. Famine, drought, and starvation could lead to corpses which look green or yellow-green in color. But in my opinion, it's the state of death, which is more emphatic here, with the pallor of death, which is often pale gray, not greenish. It's the reason that in funeral homes, they want to use makeup on the face in order to take that pallor off of the corpse. Now notice <clears throat> that this writer is the only writer with a particular name. The first three writers remain anonymous. This writer has a specific moniker, moniker and that moniker emphatically underscores the universal curse brought about by human depravity. The wages of sin 
is death. And this writer personifies that accursed sentence. But you will notice this writer has a companion. Death's temporal curse is accompanied with death's eternal sentence. Hades or hell. Hades or hell, the receptacle for unbelieving souls of the dead. Contrasting, you will note, with verse 9, where the, where the heaven, where heaven itself is the receptacle for the believing souls of the dead. So the contrast between unbelieving souls of the dead in Hades or hell and verse 9, the believing souls in heaven underneath the altar of God. Here is the writer with a companion who symbolizes the ultimate end of life in the interadventual age for those not in Christ. Those not seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Those not graciously regenerated by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Death and hell, a final judgment at the final end of the curse of sin. The wages of sin is death, and following death comes the eternal curse of hell to the unbelieving, the impenitent, the God-haters. In hell, they shall possess forever, that is, in eternity, what they loved to possess on earth. They loved on earth to show no faith or express no faith in Christ. They shall have it forever as they wished. Eternal unbelief. On earth, they showed no wish for penitent sorrow before God for their sins. They shall have their wish forever. Eternal impenitence. They showed on earth no love for God or for the Son of God. Or for the blessed Holy Spirit, they shall have forever what they wished, an eternal hatred of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. The damned will have what they wish. God will freely give them their heart's desire. They will say, we hated you, and God say, I will give you what you wished forever. You cannot come into my heaven of love. Now that second sentence of verse 8, 8b, recapitulates the order of verses 1 through 8a. Notice the sequence in that 8b line. Power or authority. I have identified that with the white horse or the white color of the first horse. Authority is given to them to kill with a sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. The word pestilence, which is translated in New American Standard, should be literally death. So notice the order. 
The order of authority corresponds with a white horse, power or authority over uh, manipulation and dominance. The power to kill with the sword goes with horse number two, the red horse, who has given a great sword. The power of famine or, pet or, or scarcity goes with the black horse, which described as the scarcity of the marketplace after war and its consequence. And pestilence, which is better translated death in, in, the, in the Greek text, death is precisely the color or the, the attribute of the fourth horse, the ashen horse. And the wild beasts clean up the earth. The carrion eaters come in after, after uh, death is spread. So my point here is to note that that second sentence of verse 8 recapitulates all of the aspects of the curse in the order in which they appear from the first writer to the second writer to the third writer to the fourth writer. This is a climactic reason, in my opinion, why the first writer is not Christ himself. He is a part of an order of the curse. From authority to killing with a sword to famine and to death, which is precisely the order and the cursed imagery of the four horses, the four horsemen themselves. These temporal judgments then will not disappear from the earth until Jesus comes. For we shall hear not only rumors of war, we shall not only hear of wars and rumors of war, we shall continue to see images of curse and curses until he comes. We take our refuge, therefore, outside the curse in the blessed benediction of the Lamb that was slain and the one who sits upon the throne in all his brilliant crystal-like diamond splendor and the fullness of the sevenfold Holy Spirit of grace. That is our treasure and legacy. Any questions? Yes, Ben. Yes. Um, they will exercise these curses to their, shall we say, destructive element, destructive power over only a quarter of the earth. They won't destroy the whole earth with it. So God will reserve a quarter of it down through his history so that the whole earth itself or the whole population of the earth is not destroyed until the second coming. Yes? If the white horse wasn't truly white, why would it represent other than it is and the other colors all be true? It's possible that it's a reminder of the white toga of the Roman emperor uh, or the, the white garment that many rulers like to wear. Uh, I'm not going to press push that, but the point is it's dis disingenuous. That is, it is not what it appears because of what comes with it. And because of that, it's as I pointed out in my comments on that, it it 
it gives us this image of that which appears to be other than it is. It wears the white, the white hat, but it in fact underneath has the black hat. It appears to be the white, pristine, squeaky clean individual who underneath the surface is a sexual predator or whatever else you want to attach to it. So it's this disingenuous character of power in its raw form counterfeiting, uh, <laughs> counterfeiting as white purity, white pristine uh, 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 innocence. It's not. Yes, Ben? Is there not any reference here perhaps to false religion? Well, that would be part of the curse. Um, if you think of rule and authority in, in theological or ecclesiastical terms, I didn't extend it that far, but it, that, that's, that is possible. Is there any uh, reference to false religion in any of these horses? They would con- they would contribute. False religion could contribute to the spirit of warfare and, and famine and so on and so forth, rather imposing a religion upon another race. Any element of the curse could probably be found inside these images because of a fairly thorough uh, indication of that which leads, unto, leads to death unjustly, unrighteously, sinfully. Okay, let's close in prayer. Lord, we realize that we are reading images which are present in our own time and have been present since the ascension of your Son in every time. And as we deal with these curses, we realize, O Lord, that we must ever more seek to be delivered from the curse and its effects even in our own lives. We thank you for the resolution of our salvation in your Son's giving of his life to purchase us by his blood. And we thank you for the work of the Spirit in our hearts to continue to encourage us in the work of sanctification and holiness so that we might live in a way which matches the purity and glory of your kingdom, of your heavenly kingdom. Lord, help us to realize that being seated in Christ Jesus means that we are privileged to walk in the light of that heavenly world, even now through our time in the interadventual period, looking forward to the great and glorious coming in the clouds of, of glory of our Lord Jesus himself at the end of the age. We pray with the early church, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly, and we ask you to bless us through this holiday season with our friends and loved ones. In the name of the babe of Bethlehem, Jesus our Lord. Amen.